buddy. Haven't been up here for a couple of weeks, so or months, or however long it's been, so I still have to get used to the microphone yet again. I promise I will keep the silly microphone attached to my head jokes to an absolute minimum. All right, welcome. Uh, this morning we're going to start looking uh, for the next three weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'll tell a little bit of story about why in a second. Uh, but first, let us pray. Um, if you want to follow along with me, I'll be reading some excerpts from Psalm 34. Uh, let's pray. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The, y <coughs> the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father in heaven, thank you that any, even though many are the afflictions of the righteous, you, Lord, deliver us out of them all. Just like you kept the bones unbroken of your son and God incarnate, Jesus Christ, and none of them were broken, Lord, we know that you redeem the life of your servants, and none of us who take refuge in you will be condemned. We pray, Father, that as we consider the words of Ecclesiastes, we keep this in mind. We remember that you are faithful and that you will take care of us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would just go ahead and turn uh, with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter one is a good place to start. I'm gonna surf around the whole book uh, a little bit this morning and just kind of give an overview. If you look at the outline, um, what we're talking about overall is a lot of background about this book, who wrote it and why, and we're gonna dive into the controversy a little bit. If you've seen um, R.C. Sproul's Series He's done two that are on the Ligonier website about Ecclesiastes. He'll start the whole thing by going, I'm going to breeze over all of that. <laughs> and he's going to get to the main message. I'm going to agree with his message pretty much on the whole, uh, but we actually are going to dive into the controversy a little bit today because I think it matters for how we look at this book and what we actually derive out of it. And when we go to read it, Knowing how it was put together and for what purpose really does affect how we're going to read it and the message we're going to take. So why are we studying this thing? 
Well, um, so I was thinking about what next Sunday school I would do, and I'm sitting at my desk at work, and it was not a good day at work. It's just, you know, one of those days where the walls are closing in on you, and you just don't know why you're there. And it comes to mind, man, vanity of vanities, this is just, why am I doing this? You know what I mean? And then I go, well, you know, I, I remember reading some things in the book of Ecclesiastes that will probably speak to this pretty well directly. So you open the book and you go, okay, the Bible's going to speak into my life here, and you read Vanity of Vanities. Well, yep, kind of knew that one. And you see other things in there like man should enjoy his work. You should take joy in your toil. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. What's the matter here? But it's also mixed with some other stuff that you're like, wait a minute. I, is that, did I read that right? Does the Bible really say that? Is that the message I'm supposed to take with that? So like, for example, you know, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion and death comes to all and, you know, who knows why we're doing any of this stuff. And you kind of come away from reading the whole book going, huh, what am I supposed to take from that? And so that kind of went, all right, fine. And then, you know, that compared, you know, Dave McGuire and I were talking about this. Um, uh, that combined with me sort of listening to some music in our popular culture today that's pretty nihilistic and pretty hopeless. And I'm like, all right, we are totally going to talk about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, our culture seems to um, be stuck in that kind of a moment. Uh, and now how are we as Christians going to deal with that? So um, to dive into our outline, Right off the bat, this book is very quotable, and a lot of people know a lot of things from it, um, and so we kind of go back to that, and so things like what? Well, verse, um, chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everybody has kind of heard that one before. Um, also, take a look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There's a song about this. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, and it continues on. Another one that you'll hear very often quoted is chapter 3, verse 11, and it kind of picks up mid-phrase. It says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in his time, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So eternity in the heart of man, everybody knows that one, but, you know, well, you just can't find out what's going on is, is also what it's paired with. That's kind of interesting. Why else? So what we're looking at here is the author of this book is kind of struggling right in front of us. I'm kind of stealing a little bit of my thunder here. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but it also sounds an awful lot like what our culture is going through. You see a couple of major themes, right? Work, labor. You should enjoy your work. And you find that in um, two of the many places there. I listed chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 5, verse 18. I'll kind of read one of them. Let's go 3, verse 22. You know, so I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will come after him? And 518 is a very similar theme. 
you know, you should, you should enjoy your work. But at the same time, hey man, you can really pass on your earnings to you fools, right? Now I don't know why I'm doing this because the things I could do, I'm gonna give to my son who's dumb or whatever. I don't have a son, thankfully. Uh, so I didn't just insult my son for those that might be worried. Um, so uh, chapter two, verse 19. And who knows whether he, the recipient of those things, will be wise or a fool you know, back to 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise, uh, whether he will be wise or a fool, right? So, hey, you're supposed to enjoy your work, but these things that we're gathering because of our work, yeah, I could turn those into to my posterity who are going to squander them, okay? Uh, themes of oppression, we see that as well. So the oppressed kind of have nobody to comfort them. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, I, the preacher says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. More on that in a minute as well. Um, you also see themes of good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. You know, um, going into chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. We see that. We also see themes of vanity, of uh, pleasure and wealth. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, you get the, the kind of the, the monologue there where he goes, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. And if you look at some of the commentary that we'll look at next week, you know, it, it's pretty clear what he's talking about. The English translation is a little coy with it, but he's pretty, in the original language is pretty clear that he's talking about he's sleeping around quite a bit. This guy's having a really good time with his um, many concubines or whatever he's doing. Uh, he's also producing works of art. He's building great building projects. He is enjoying all of the ancient world has to offer. And so we see that our culture is kind of going through something like that. And so these things strike a chord with us. We're starting to see these things in our real lives. And we're like, well, okay, the Bible's got something to say to that. Let's go and see what Ecclesiastes has to say. So therefore, that's another reason why we're taking a look at it. The other thing is, just like I hinted at before, a lot of the author's musings sound, and some of the things I've already read, sound contrary to the rest of Scripture. Like, if that's what it is, and the Bible's presenting this to me, but I just read in the Psalms previously that, you know, um, like I read in Psalm 34, God is going to protect the righteous in an ultimate sense. So why is it that we are seeing in the very, one of the next books, something that sounds very hopeless and dystopian? So like in verse chap or chapter uh, 22 verses, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, we see themes like the work is utterly meaningless. Chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, he says, be not overly righteous. Be not overly wicked at the same time. Like that, like really? I'm supposed to read this like the book of Proverbs? More on that in a second. Uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, the living have hope, the dead know nothing. That really flies in the face of the New Testament in particular. And so we as Christians, we're going to go to this and we're going to go, well, all right. There are things in there that we've often quoted. 
There are things in here where it's going to be really difficult to understand, but it's going to strike a chord with our modern culture. And, man, I really need to figure out what this means and how we as a church should look at it. So ultimately, that is why we're looking at this. So diving right into it, let's figure out who wrote this thing if we are able. First and foremost, if you turn back to chapter 1, we meet the principal character. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word preacher is a translation um, of a Hebrew word. There are many different ways to transliterate it, as I've kind of looked in some of my, um, my study resources. Um, the one that everybody seems to um, land on is how you have it printed there. Kohelet is Hebrew for the preacher or potentially the assembler or the person who speaks. And um, as you're going to look at it in either Latin or Greek, as that's kind of translated, we kind of get ecclesia, the, the church, the gathering. And so the assembler, the gatherer, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, that's kind of how it all fits together. And so the scholars, when they're talking about the book, they talk about Ecclesiastes. When they talk about the preacher, they'll either say the preacher or Kohelet. And so that's kind of how I'm going to refer to him through the rest of our, our discussion. I'll call him Colette. And so that's what, who the preacher is. That's the character. So who is he? Well, how many people think it is Solomon? Okay, that's a popular, that is, yes. Do not feel bad if you think it's Solomon. How many people think it's not Solomon? There are those that think it is not Solomon. Okay, good. Um, just a poll. Don't, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. Uh, so, Okay. So was it Solomon? Well, if we have evidence from the text and we have evidence from tradition, the evidence from the text goes something like this. Starting out at the very beginning, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That sounds an awful lot like Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king in Jerusalem. That kind of makes sense. Sounds an awful lot like Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. That sort of lines up with the narrative from um, 2 Samuel and Chronicles that that could very well be Solomon. Uh, let's go all the way to the end now. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. It, it, that textual presentation lines up with kind of what we see in the rest of the Old Testament about Solomon, how Solomon is presented to us. So from the text, it, it looks very, very much like Solomon could be the author. So from tradition, uh, what do we have? Well, um, first and foremost, I'm just going to go straight to the Reformation. Luther considered this as, uh, in Ecclesiastes, the book of Solomon's sort of memoir of repentance. He's looking back on his whole life and going, man, that was a bad idea. I shouldn't have gotten involved in all that stuff. I'm going to write about how vain that was. I'm going to repent. We're going to move on. 
That's uh, kind of Luther's take on it. Um, he got that from kind of what's called the Jewish Targum. Um, I hope I get this analogy right. Uh, the Targum is kind of like the Jewish ancient Amplified Bible. Everybody remember the Amplified Bible from the 80s where it's kind of like a commentary and the text mixed together, but there's a lot of character of the paraphraser put into that. In this case, the Targum is sort of like an expanded uh, tradition added interleaved textual presentation of the Old Testament and it expounds and uh, claims this as the work of Solomon and his, uh, just like where Luther said, his sort of memoir of repentance or a public repentance. The rest of the text of the Bible, however, does not catalog or present Solomon as having publicly repented. It just says what he did. Um, and so, yes, um, is there evidence it was Solomon? There is evidence both from scripture and tradition. There are other bits of evidence as well. I'm kind of glossing over those for now. Was it or is it possible that this is somebody other than Solomon? Well, yeah. Let's take a look at the evidence inside the text. For one, Solomon is never mentioned by name. We just have son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, that sounds good, but it does not say Solomon. You will not find it in the text. Um, also, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 12, Kohelet of himself says he was king in Israel. I don't know that you can ever have, uh, that the living man can say he was king because he was always king until he died. We don't have a record like David where David passed on kingship to Solomon while David was alive. We don't see that Solomon did that to Rehoboam, and so therefore there was never a time where he wasn't king if he was king previously. Does that kind of make sense? So why say that you were king if you are still king and you're alive? There's a couple ways you could look at it, but you know that's a good question to have. Stronger than that, um, take a look at um, chapter 3, verse 16. I kind of read some of this before. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there, there was wickedness. Okay? Well, here's a question. If, uh, well, actually, let's look at a couple others before I kind of make this point. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So I read that previously. Let's look at uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Okay, here's a question. If you're the king and you see that, why not do something about it? Kind of make sense? You were the absolute monarch of Israel and you could have somebody killed with a word. Why do you not make that stop? Why wring your hands about it? That kind of makes sense? So that, that is an issue that competes with the king in Jerusalem. Does that answer the question? No but it's something to think about. Uh, also, and this is, I think, one of the most important things to think about, Kohelet, throughout the whole book, never says Yahweh. 
He never uses the L-O-R-D in all caps, the tetragrammaton, the covenant name of God. He never uses it. Okay, what does that mean? He uses in the Hebrew, he uses Elohim to talk about God. He does not ever say Yahweh. And so how are we supposed to look at that? Well, it, it is likely that he is not using a warm, friendly, covenantal relationship-based term for God. So it's either Solomon is in his apostasy, so that could be, or it could be somebody else who's not as familiar and does not understand the covenant. So does that conclude it's not Solomon? No, but it's something to think about. Let's take a look at evidence outside the text. It's kind of based on, some of the first ones is based on the text. If you look at the language, the Hebrew itself, now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I have to kind of trust the rest resources I used. If you look at the bibliography or the notes at the bottom, you're going to see there's two primary books that I used. Both are recommended by Ligonier, and they're competing scholars. This one was written in 1998, and he cites uh, books going all the way back to the 1800s. This guy, so this guy was the editor for this book, but the principal author for here contradicts this guy's ultimate conclusion, so I have two uh, different competing commentaries, but they seem to line up and, and give a pretty good preponderance of the modern scholarship between 1998 and 2009 um, about what the Hebrew language is telling us and what people have discovered doing a lot of research into the text. And it basically says this, the Hebrew language in the book of Ecclesiastes written by Koholet is not necessarily consistent with the Hebrew of Psalms, Proverbs, and potentially the Psalm of Solomon, Song of Solomon. What we find are terms, and if you, you find the specific citations there, 610, 714, 81, and the like, and you'd have to look up the textual um, notes in my, um, my citation there, but they, cr they show a couple of those terms, and they go, these Hebrew terms did not necessarily come from Hebrew, they came from Aramaic. They came from Aramaic and potentially Babylonian Aramaic and how that language influenced people who may have actually been in the exile. So for that reason, if the language is not lining up with the period that we expect Solomon to have written the book, that's a problem. Does it prove anything? No, but it is strong evidence that says, well, maybe he is not the author, perhaps. Another thing is if you take a look at the way he approaches ideas, you're going to see, and we're going to look at this next week a lot, you're going to see this where he says, I saw this, and I thought this about it, and therefore I draw that conclusion. That is a Greco-Roman, Neo-Babylonian way of thinking. We're comfortable with it because we're sort of from the Greco-Roman Western tradition. That is the way we think. We are individualistic. A Jew of this time would have thought, I need revelation and wisdom with which to interpret the things I'm seeing. That is not the way that Colette, the author of Ecclesiastes, presents his ideas. Does it prove anything? No, not necessarily, because we see throughout the rest of Scripture that Solomon was blessed with wisdom and knowledge, so it is possible that he could be using that to make his point. So, again, does it prove anything? Not necessarily but it is something to consider. And so the preponderance of modern scholarship is going to say it probably because of the language, 
the way the language is presented, the way the ideas are presented, it is more likely than not somebody other than Solomon wrote it and wrote it post-exile, coming out of Babylon and back into the promised land at around the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, or potentially late in Daniel's life. That's the conclusion they kind of come to. Most of these scholars are going to agree that this Kohelet character is a real person. Um, some will say that he impersonates Solomon for a particular effect. We're going to talk about that a little bit more when we start getting into genre. Uh, some propose that it could be Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. You see him prophesied about as a man that God will specifically bless for leadership of his people. You also see there um, that he was a ruler of his people uh, as a governor coming back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, he would have been raised and uh, indoctrinated and educated in the time of the exile in Babylonian culture. And so some of these Babylonian ideals, some of these Greek ideas that might have been uh, migrating into Babylon, he would have been familiar with those and know how to use them in a particular uh, manner to present it in a certain way. That's possible. Um, and then Longman, uh, not Longman, sorry, Bartholomew, one of the other authors I read, kind of dismisses that and goes, well, there's problems with that. And there's problems with all of it. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it could be that guy. It kind of lines up with the time period, maybe. It, we don't know. And so they're going to say that this guy's a real person, but conclusively, do we know who it is? No. And it's kind of unsatisfactory to say that. Um, and I would... You know, do we see that in the rest of Scripture? Yeah, we kind of do with the book of Hebrews. There are a lot of people who have thought uh, certain things about how that goes, and as scholarship has progressed, we just kind of throw up our hands and go, we don't know. Is that satisfactory? Yeah, it's kind of hard, but the whole book is kind of hard. Um, we'll get to that more in a bit. Some will also say, and this is the, tr the principal debate between the two scholars that I read, is that there potentially are two authors. Uh, Longman will say two, Bartholomew will say one. And this is basically the way they're going to present it, is that chapters one, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 11, is written in the third person. Vandy of Vandy says, the preacher. And then, picking up in verse 12, you hear, I, the preacher. So the first person narrative starts in verse uh, 12 of chapter 1. Concludes in chapter 12, verse 18. You've got a, con a concluding section in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Different scholars are going to look at that differently. Some will say it's two people. Some are going to look at it and go, it's one person that's writing it for effect, that's changing his voice for the point. Either, I think, are legitimate, both have problems. Here's the problem. If it's two, we don't see that kind of pattern anywhere else in Scripture that I can think of quickly. And so, in our doctrine of inspiration of Scripture, we have an inspired author making a, a writing not necessarily grabbing a writing from somebody else. Now, we see Paul doing that a little bit when he quotes secular people, but we don't necessarily see that big of a section written by a secular individual. So that's one problem. If it's two, or I'm sorry, if it's one author that kind of changes his voice, the problem I have with that is that he doesn't use the covenant name of God in the opening and closing. Which one is which? I don't know. I think it's legitimate to look at, uh, to consider either, and it, it doesn't necessarily hinge the rest of my point, um, but, for example, just so you know, there's a lot of scholarship going on about whether it's one or two. Um, 
I'll tell you about what my assumptions are for the rest of the course or class here in a bit. Styles and frameworks, all right, what genre is this? I'm gonna breeze over the genre and the dating and get right into frameworks because I do want to pr uh, preserve some time for questions because it's not Solomon could be a really controversial thing and you know, I just kind of want to open the floor up and see if anybody uh, has any questions. What's the genre? Um, it could be something called dialogue of pessimism or literary pessimism. If you hear Sproul, this is Sproul's primary preference for what this thing is. We see it primarily in ancient Egypt in its end author being pessimistic to make a point. We'll talk about that point in a second when we start getting to the end. It also could be what's called a grave biography um, where an author will write or eulogize a dead king using the first person, using that king's character and presenting that to either, either be spoken at the grave or for a particular point. There's some elements of that. Um, it, that is, um, of whom I wrote, that is uh, Longman's view. There's also, you can see some similarities with a Greek diatribe where you've got a narrator trying to just say a long litany of things very quickly to make a point. We see elements of that. Neither one of these actually line up perfectly with that presented genre, right? There's no scholarly consensus on a unified genre. It is this. The best they can say is it sounds an awful lot like this, and it sounds an awful lot like this, and it sounds an awful lot like this, and we kind of have to consider them all. Genre isn't really gonna kind of, I'm not gonna hinge a lot on it, as it were, but it's important to know, because it has to be presented some way. Most, the most important thing is the framework, which we'll get to in point five. When was it written? Well, if it's written early, that's the case that Hey, Solomon wrote it, but if he didn't, then it's a late date because of the language. Uh, most scholarship is gonna line that up with the late date because of the influence that they detect of Persian, Aramaic, Babylonian language constructions in there, uh, and they'll date it within about 100 years of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. Also, um, you know, when would um, Jewish people have gotten under the influence of of thinking like the Stoics or thinking like um, Greek thinkers, uh, it would have happened during the exile. So now how do you actually approach the text? Well, um, back to Sproul again, if you watch his uh, lessons, he will talk about it in the theme of stuff happens under the sun and stuff happens under heaven. You see that repeated in the text. I saw an evil under the sun or there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And Sproul will make a difference between the two and say, assuming a genre of literary pessimism, under the sun means that's the world bound by space and time and that's all we as natural human beings can see. And that's why things can appear vain under the sun. If you look under heaven though, that is the true created order of God under God's sovereign control, and to know anything about it requires special revelation. And so that's Sproul's um, view on that one. Its basic thesis kind of resolves this way, is that the world looks this kind of way to you because we're living under the sun, but with uh, knowing God's sovereignty because of his divine revelation, now we have access to a grander, better view under heaven. 
Another way of looking at it would be the frame narrative. And if you kind of go back to point number four IV, and you see where it says you got narrator, Colette, and a narrator. That's what we mean by frame, uh, narrate, fra frame narration. There is a narrative section in the middle that is framed by a separate narrator's voice. Could be the same guy, could be two. Don't really know. Multiple genres are possible. It could be a grave biography, it could be a diatribe. There's elements of both. Um, now, if there's one author, Colette is the narrator and the preacher. He sets it up, says some things, closes it at the end. If it's two, like we said, you've got a different guy who's going, you're about to hear a thing. This is the thing. Hey, that thing you heard, think about it this way. Because at the very end of the book, you're going to go, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and obey his commandments. Sort of a capstone on the end. That's another way to look at it. Given all that, which one of them is right? <laughs> Did Solomon write it? How is this supposed to be framed? Um, this is why Sproul went like, all this controversy? I'm not even gonna touch it. We're just gonna go into the message. The reason there's so much controversy is because there's really no way to know. We've lost a lot of the language and books and literature of antiquity. So we kind of can take a guess so, for example, Longman studied 15 texts that he thinks are very similar to this grave narrative, grave biography, from the Akkadian Empire, which is um, in Mesopotamia. That's only 15. I'm sure there were many, many hundreds or more written, and all we have are 15. So, what are we going to do? Um, I will assume that Ecclesiastes is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. We have it in our text. Westminster affirms it as scripture. God, the Holy Spirit, has preserved this for us to study for a particular purpose. So I'm going to assume that is my assumption number one. I will assume the author is not Solomon, that it's a post-exilic uh, writing, meaning it was written after the exile, and in a frame narrative interpretive structure. So meaning somebody says, you're going to see something, this is it. At the end, this is what it means. That's what I'm going to assume for the rest of the, uh, the time I'm teaching up here. Now, why was this written? Uh, it was written, according to some of the scholarship that I wrote, uh, read, and I would agree that it was, if it's post-exile, it was written for the Jew who was disillusioned coming back from the exile, and we see this in Ezra and Nehemiah, where they come back, yay, we're back in the promised land, but oh, we're gonna marry foreign wives. Oh, we're going to build a temple, but oh, somebody insulted me. I'm going to be afraid, right? We see that turmoil there. And so I think it is likely that this was written to address that and to address some of the attitudes that they would have seen during their exile. We've seen the same thing coming out of Egypt where the first five books were written particularly, or in, in the Exodus was a, uh, written particularly to attack the Egyptian gods. And so we kind of see that. That would be consistent with the pattern of Scripture. This would be a snap back then to reality, given all those ideas that they would have existed under in a multicultural Babylonian environment. Therefore, that main section where we uh, see all those things that's just like, wow, that's really conflicting with the rest of scripture. What am I supposed to do with that? It's supposed to, because you're supposed to look at that and go, that's not 
Why are you thinking that way? Right? It's being presented to us to look at it that way, to go, wait a minute, that, that's not right. Which is why it's opened with, in chapter 1, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is a pretty good summary of what he says during the whole book. This is what you're going to hear. He's going to tell you that life is vain. He's going to tell you that generations go and come, and we don't know what's going to happen. The wind blows. Nothing really is going to happen. It all just happens over and over and over again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it in chapter 1, verse 8. This is what you're going to see. There's nothing new under the sun. He's going to tell you that. Then you see all that stuff, and particularly as you get to the end in, in chapters 11 and 12, Colette is really obsessed with death. It's like, yeah, we're all going to die. Life's hard, and then you're going to die. Right? That's exactly what he says. But then you see in chapter 12, the end says this. In chapter 12, verses 13 and following, this, it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether every secret, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so, how are we supposed to read this book? We're tempted to read this like Proverbs. We're tempted to go into there and go, all right, cool, hey, uh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Um, you know, God has put eternity in the heart of man. We're tempted to look at this and see it from that perspective. But what we really should do, if we're going to look at it from that frame narrative point of view, is to look at it like Job. Remember the beginning of Job. You see the counsel of God and uh, the counsel of heaven. You know what is going on in the rest of the book. But if you didn't have that, if you were just Job and his buddies, well, you might be thinking like they did. But we know. We are the reader. And then you kind of see the same thing where Job's friends say things that are true, but they misapply them. You, say Col you see Colette say things that are true, but he misapplies it. And at the very end, God sets it right. He shows up. He speaks out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I did this, 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 and this? And Job says, all right, I'll be quiet now. We don't see that in the book of Ecclesiastes where the reader or the, the main character responds. But we do see that other voice go, cage back to reality. Fear God and keep his commandments. And that, I would uh, because of that, that is what I will propose is how we're supposed to look at it so that we don't actually get into the same trap to think that life is actually vain. If you look with me in 1 Corinthians, sorry, I should have marked this. Chapter 16, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we're tempted to go, vanity of vanities, things bad are things are going to happen. I have to deal with this kind of thing. Yes, the world does look like this. But at the end, fear God and obey his commandments. The New Testament is going to tell you this. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So in the next two weeks, what are we going to do? Uh, week two, we're going to take a look at it from our perspective and go, how are we supposed to look at this? We're going to go and walk through Colette's little um, inner conflict and then figure out what we're supposed to take. 
And then week three, given that message, now how are we supposed to approach our culture because our culture is going to think like this. So how are we supposed to encourage and or call them to repentance in that light? So I kind of left us about five to six-ish minutes for questions. Please let me have them. And uh, hopefully I did not just spew controversy. If I did, I will submit to correction. I may have missed this, Ryan, but who is Kohelet? I mean, I've never heard that name before, and you were kind of talking about it yeah. like I should know, but I've never heard that name before. It's, yeah. I don't even think it's in the, is it in the Bible? Well, so it is the Hebrew for the preacher. Sorry if oh, I didn't underscore okay. that well enough. Gotcha. Yeah. I missed that. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the Hebrew word for it that we translate to be preacher. So who do they think the preacher is? Ultimately, we don't know. Okay. So the scholarship's going to go, could be this guy, could be that guy, could be this guy at this time, could be that guy at that time. It could be Solomon. We don't know. Okay. We have a lot of conflicting All right. evidence. Okay. All right. Sorry I missed that. No, no worries. Sorry if I didn't underscore that appropriately. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, since um, Colette is the preacher, that couldn't it be more than one author? Does it have to be just one? It could be, yeah. And also one other thing was um, when you said in point six, you assume the author is not Solomon. Yeah. And that Ecclesiastes is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Isn't that true of all the Bible? Yes. Okay. And, um, okay, so I just don't understand why it's important. Yeah, um, why it's important that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Why it matters, since we're not 100% sure. Yeah. Since, yeah, who the author is, um, if it's so ambiguous and you can't define it in any um, particular way, then why yeah. are we talking about it, I guess? Yeah, there's a lot of controversy, particularly like for, um, early Judaism went through this too. Um, Christianity has not, but Judaism did, where they go, is this scripture? I don't know what I should do with this. The early church treated this as scripture. Um, Westminster, our tradition, treats it as scripture. And so if we are to treat it as scripture, then therefore it is inspired by God just like the rest of the Bible. And so if it's not scripture, we shouldn't even look at this, especially in this class, right? Um, but if it is, then we do need to know how to look at it because we can't just read that thing and go, well, um, be not overly righteous, be not overly wise, and take that as direction, right? I have to know how is the rest of scripture telling me to take that phrase and what to do with it. Is it teaching me to act that way, or is it teaching me to look at that and go, don't act that way? Does that make sense? Very simple question. Sure. And your reference is, what is Ibid? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ibidibum, or what it's the Latin for, it came from the same place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you see that, like, Ibid, 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 what that means is, like, it's the same book, but a different page in the same book. Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yes, ma'am. Has anyone ever looked at this as an ancient screenplay, like someone's acting it out about Solomon, looking back on Solomon's yeah. life, trying to put it into perspective? Yes, either Solomon himself or somebody that acts like him. Right. Uh, that is a way that, particularly that grave biography, I, I'm thinking of is a way to look at that. The slaves on the horses. If somebody yeah. looked at Solomon as not really doing anything about stuff like we would today. 
Hmm. So they made a play about it? Yeah, that's possible. Um, I don't know. Others? If the language is sort of similar to like the um, like Daniel, and uh, is there any thought that Daniel could have wrote it, uh, you know, written it, and like Nebuchadnezzar could have played into that, or Cyrus, or any of the pagan kings? Um, I did not see anything about Daniel wrote this. Um, I think it is, there's a lot of strong evidence to say that you're seeing injustices that may very well have been happening in a decadent Babylon. Um, but again, what everybody's clear on is that the message is pretty clear, um, but the person and circumstances could be one of three or four different things. Others? Rick? I'll repeat your question for the internet's sake. Yeah. That causes the problem. Like, if you were to distill it down, mm -hmm. what is the one verse that says waiting? Mm -hmm. Is this really Solomon? Yeah. Um, most of the scholars are going to say that after about chapter 3 into chapters 4 and following, um, you don't have any autobiographical, this is what I was like, and more into the, like, I'm just, you know, complaining about the things that I'm seeing. Um, and so it's kind of that shift, and the first time you see something that you're like, wait a minute, why, why would I do that? Um, why would I just throw up my hands with oppression, for example? Um, it's something like that where it really causes you to think, um, and that, that, that's at least when I read it from the perspective of trying to take this as Proverbs, where you immediately step back and go, why am I being told that um, things like... Um, you know, I work really hard and I'm supposed to take joy in my labor, but it, it's vain because I'm going to give it to my son who's going to squander it, right? And it just leaves it there. And, and that's one of the reasons why you just start sitting back and scratch your head. So that, for me, is that's where I start to go, wait a minute, this is something else is going on here, possibly. Yes? So, so what is the Not on. Oh, sorry. What what is the verb tense in one twelve? I the teacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Yeah, it was. It's past but tense. It is past. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's just. I mean, that's a weak weaker point, but it starts the train. If why would the living king say he was king as if it is over? And that's the sense that they were getting at. Other questions? Solid. Okay. Uh, let me pray. If you have other questions, please come find me. Um, and uh, we will um, go on from there. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in you our labor is not in vain. I pray, Father, that as we consider the words of Ecclesiastes, that we see that there is a claim that life is vain that there is a claim that there, you do not interact with your creation, um, that we know that the rest of your scripture 
and your spirit speaking to us says the exact opposite. And so, Lord, thank you for giving these, us these words to consider, that we can see that you do act, that we are supposed to take this and go, no, that is not the way that the Lord behaves. Lord, you have created us, and you love us, and you've given us Jesus Christ and raised him from the dead as proof. And Father, I pray that we would focus on that and that we would live lives as are worthy of the gospel. Please be with Pastor Tim as he presents your word this morning, and I pray that we would worship together as a body in church. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.